So uh, we started last week with uh, the book of Ruth, and uh, we're going to continue that today uh, through Advent up until Christmas. And there's just a couple, I want to just quickly uh, remind you of a couple of things before we dig in this morning, just to, <clears throat> to help you uh, to get a handle on this. So uh, in verses one through five, what we witness is catastrophe upon catastrophe, because remember, uh, there's a famine in the land of Judah during the uh, uh, around the area of Bethlehem. Uh, during uh, the period of the judges, when there was no king in Israel, when every man, as uh, the book of Judges said, did what was right in his own eyes. So this family, Naomi, Elimelech, and their two sons, uh, pack up because they're starving to death, and they go to Moab. And uh, while they're in Moab, the two sons uh, find Moabite girls, and they marry them. But while they're there, and they're there for an extended period of time, uh, the uh, some terrible things happen. So... There's famine that drove them out of their homeland. Secondly, there's death. And the death that we see is that the three men, uh, uh, Naomi, her, her husband, and uh, her two sons, both die. And so uh, there's, there's death three times over. What we note is that for whatever period of time, those girls were married to those boys. They were not blessed with children. There was, it's clear that, uh, that they were barren. barren and now we have these three widows. Uh, and we left last week with the question of, does God see, does God hear, and can he heal and restore? That those are the questions that, that Naomi and her life and the catastrophe upon catastrophe that says uh, 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 to us. And so one of the things that I ended with last week was to point out to you that verse 6, which we'll read again today, begins to help us to shine a bit of a glimmer of light uh, into the darkness of what's happening here. Because we read in verse 6 that Naomi hears that God had visited, has visited his people in Judah and he's lifted the famine, that there's actually some food there to eat. Now, what we're going to look at today, one of the things that we need to unpack, and one of the things that's important to understand is how, how to think about these events how to think about these women, how to, to kind of process this. Because I know this morning in this room, there are people who are facing life-altering situations. I know there are people in this room who are facing life-ending situations. Maybe maybe not in their own lives, some of you uh, in your own lives, some of you uh, uh, with people that you love. And one of the things that you have to see about this as we, as we think about this is, how do I think about this? How do I react to this? How do I process this? How do I walk through this? Because there's a temptation that we all experience in the midst of these kind of circumstances and suffering is to think, you know, where's God in all this? How is he going to help me? What's he going to do? How is he going to provide for me? Is, does he even care? Does he see? Is he aware? Is there, is there anything about him at all in the midst of the circumstances that I'm in that's, that's, that's going to help me, right? Um, I, I was meeting this week with, with someone who was here, I don't know, 12, 13 years ago when I, when I, when I preached through Ruth. And, and one of the things that she said to me was that you were very careful 12 or 13 years ago not to jump to the end, not to get to the happy ending, until we got to the happy ending. Why this time did you make a special point, as we did last week, we looked at the end of the book where we see Naomi with her grandson sitting on her lap and the book tells us that the ladies in the neighborhood are saying, look, God has given Naomi a son. Why, why 
Why go to that? Well, the, the thing about it is what I wanted us to do 10 or 12 years ago was to kind of interact with this story and interact with it with our own lives in the sense that to feel the difficulty uh, and to feel the grief and not to minimize it, to jump to the happy ending. I'm 10 or 12 years older, 10 or 12, you know, I'm definitely older because I can't tell. Is it 10 or 12? (laughs) Right? There you go. And one of the things that I think about this is, uh, um, honestly, I want us us to see the suffering and experience the grief and the reality of that in light of the happy ending. Now, now, as I say that, what, what I want you, I don't want you to jump to the, this conclusion that what I'm saying to you is because we know that Jesus has lived, because we know that Jesus has died, because we know that he has risen again, and because we know that he is coming for us and that we have an eternity of bliss and joy with him, then these things that we experience shouldn't make us sad. But what I want you to hear today is that actually, In some ways, the reality of the great news of the gospel and the redemption that we have in Christ actually might make you interact with the brokenness and the fallenness and the effect of sin in the world in a way that actually might make you at least momentarily sadder because you see the end. You long. Your desire is for Jesus to come to heal, to restore, and to make things better. And so because you see that and you know the end of the story, you long for that to break in on where you are right now. You see, part of the deal here is, and this is one of the things that we need to, a discipline that we need to learn and that we need to understand as we go through this. And it is the discipline of lament. You see, there there is nothing wrong. In fact, uh, we, we don't do this very well and we don't do it often enough where we look at the world, we experience the pain and the suffering that's there in our own lives and we don't just sit in that and cry out to God, Lord, will you do something? Rather, rather, our tendency is to become embittered. Well, of course he didn't do anything. He's, he's, you know, even if there, you know, is there a God? I don't know. He doesn't seem to be very interested. And we, we become embittered and we become angry and we get turned in on ourselves. And so that all we can see is that the best you can hope for in this world is to get out with as little of pain as possible. That's not lament. That's bitterness. Um, As we've gone through the last few weeks and months of grieving the loss of my mom, one of the things that has happened to us in the providence of God is that we've had a lot of stuff break. Uh, Had to get a new water heater. Now, that sounds terrible. The water heater was 20 years old. uh, And uh, I installed that water heater 20 years ago. The plumber was like, who installed your water heater? <laughs> I did, buddy, and it lasted 20 years. Yours better last that long. We had to, but you know what? Is that a big deal? Had to get a new toilet. Is that a big deal? We have something going on with one of our cars such that if you don't drive it every three hours, it won't start. There's something in the car 
draining the battery. Now, I'm, I'm taking it tomorrow to get it fixed finally. But I know my neighbor has thought every morning when he sees me come out of my house in my pajamas, walk to the end of the driveway, get the paper, tuck it under my uh, arm, turn one car on, pull it up next to the other one, open it up, get the jumper cables out, jump it, and let the diesel sit there and run while Marty gets ready to go to school. And I'm thinking, you know, Lord, lighten up. Now, this is not a big deal. This, this is a car that won't start. You know, I was standing out there looking at my water heater, watching this stuff drain out of it that I'm like, I don't even know what that is uh, that was coming out of it and thinking, you know, it's kind of a weird image to see a water heater in your driveway. Right? And I thought... That's my life. That's my life. Well, you see, the, the, the tendency that we have in these kind of situations is to, to become, turn in on ourselves and become more and more bitter. When it actually, what I want to tell you today and what I'm going to encourage you to do and what we're going to see about this is don't be bitter, be sadder. And what I mean by that is to come full uh, on with the experience of pain and suffering that we see in the world, to see it for what it is, but also to understand uh, uh, that there's a God at work in this. And though we may not understand it, and his timetable certainly may not be ours, uh, there is, uh, we should express our sadness and our grief and our longing that things are not the way they should be. So in light of those things, let's, let me read to you, beginning at Ruth chapter 1, verses 6 through 18, and then we'll dig uh, into uh, the passage just a little bit deeper. This, is, uh, this text is in the bulletin and also up on the screens behind me. Uh, this is God's word, and we should hear it uh, and respond to it as such this morning. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way. For I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you, for where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God, where you die, I will die, 
and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. So um, let's, let's go with the notes up there, Megan. So verse 6, hence that the Lord has something in store for these women in Bethlehem. They have no idea. Simply all that the text tells us is, is that, that, that Naomi he, hears as she's working and living there in Moab that there's some food now in Bethlehem, and she determines that she's going to go back there. And my guess is, based on the way she's feeling and the way she expresses herself, that her desire is to go back there perhaps to, to, to find a little bit of sustenance, but to die in a place that's at least relatively familiar. Because she has no idea who is left there for her. She has no sense of anything like that at all. And so, so she's simply going back to what was familiar to her as a place where she would die at least uh, in her home. And so what the writer of this story wants us to see to the fullest extent is, is Naomi's misery and bone-deep bitterness. Bone-deep bitterness. And one of the ways that we can get at that is to look at what she says. Uh, notice what she, what she says to her daughters-in-law. Go, return, turn back, turn back, turn back, return. Right? She uses that language over and over again as she talks with them through through this conversation. I mean, the, the fact is she is pressing upon them that she wants to go to Judah back to Bethlehem all by herself. She does not want them to go. She, the, the, the fact is it would be better for them to stay in Moab. It would be better for them to return uh, to their families. Now, we hear this and we think, why in the world would Naomi do this? She has no one left in the world. Her husband's dead. Her sons are dead. All she has is these two Moabite girls who married her sons. And But at least that's something. So why would she urge them to turn around and go back? Why wouldn't she want them to go go with her? She just being some sort of, you know, is, this, is it like, you know, the fake kind of West End thing where we say, no, don't really do this when we mean, yes, do this. You know, that kind of thing. Is that what's going on? No, no. She's really being honest and clear here. So next slide. So know, know what she says. She says, go to your mother's house. Why is that? Well, the reason why she says to go to your mother's house should give us an indication of what Naomi sees. You have to understand that to Naomi, Ruth and Orpah are burdens. They're burdens. Because what she says there is, what she recognizes is, is, is that she has a responsibility. And so rather than her being the one that's responsible for them, Go back to your mother's house. Let your mom be responsible for you. I can't take care of you. I can't provide sons for you. I can't do what you need to do to make it in this world. She even says to, to, to Orpah, she says, you know, go back to the house of her husband with the idea that if she goes back to Moab, she has a great shot at finding a husband, having someone to take care of her, someone to provide her with children, and someone to provide her with a future. Naomi has none of that. And also notice what he says. She says, she says, see, your sister-in-law has returned to her people and to her gods. Now, one of the things that you have to see about this is one of the things that we have to acknowledge about this is the, the level of spiritual interest, the level of, of what's going on spiritually in this family. You know, did did they sit around with, when Elimelech was alive with the girls around the dinner table and talk about the Red Sea and that kind of stuff? I don't know. I don't know. 
But one thing's certain, what, what, what Naomi is saying there is just go back to your own gods. Go on back to your own place. That, that's the safest, best place for you. She does not want the responsibility of these uh, women because there's no hope for her to provide what she, that, that she could provide them husbands. There's no hope that she could do that. Now you hear that and you think, what is, what is that even talking about? One of the ways you know the Bible, and particularly the Old Testament, is in a different world from the world in which you live as this thing. In a world where women's only hope in life is to have men take care of them and ultimately male children to carry along the, 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 the name of the family uh, and to carry on the, the seed of the husband and to provide for the, the women in their old age, God does something when a husband, when, when a when he, it was, bear with me on this, because every time I think about this, I shudder. But what, what God did was, he provided for uh, women this thing called leveret marriage. For instance, my brother married to his wife. If he were to die before they had children, my responsibility, and this is why it makes me shudder, would be to take her into my family and to marry her and provide her with children so that there would be someone there to care for her in her old age and so that my brother's name would continue. I pray for his health daily. Okay, right? Like, take your medicine, get that run in, you know. And you, and you hear this, and, and from our standpoint in our culture, and we think, that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. That sounds like a nightmare, right? <clears throat> but it, it's not a nightmare in a culture where women need someone to care for them, and the, fa- the, the carrying on of the family name for the inheritance is something of such importance. So Na- when Naomi says, I can't provide for you husbands, that's what she's talking about. The job... Uh, the, the, the job of Naomi's family, the obligation that she bears these women now in that culture is to see to it that they get husbands so that they'll have children. But secondly, she doesn't want the responsibility of these women because she believes that God is against her. She says, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. So in other words, God is against me. And therefore, if you hit your wagon to me, then therefore you'll suffer if you stay with me. Now, that's a pretty profound, that is a bleak, dark place to be. Because she has suffered so much, she has struggled so much, she, she cannot see any light at all. The fact that God is providing food in Bethlehem, the fact that she has a way to go back is, is, is nothing to her. And the fact, honestly, is we'll see that God is providing for her, for her and he is caring for her. She can't see it. She is so embittered. She is so turned in upon herself that the actual provision of God to her seems like a curse. Next slide. There's a lesson here. This is from John Piper. When we have decided that God is against us, we usually exaggerate our hopelessness, which that is a great sentence. When we think that God is against us, we generally exaggerate our hopelessness. We, we exaggerate our hopelessness when we think God is against us. 
if, if you think God is against you, you've got some pretty exaggerated hopelessness going on in your life if you're in Christ. It's impossible. It's impossible. We become so bitter we can't see the rays of light peeping out around the clouds. That's a terrible sentence. Um, I hate the word peeping. Uh, God is shining light into our darkness. That's, that's a better way to say that. It was God who broke the famine and opened the way home. It was God who preserved a kinsman, as we'll see, to continue Naomi's line. But she doesn't know that. And it was God who constrains Ruth to stay with Naomi. But Naomi is so embittered by God's hard providence that she can't see his mercy at work in her life. Listen, Ruth is a mercy to her. And all she can see of that mercy is, this is a weight around my neck, an obligation and a responsibility that I cannot carry. Listen, I've said this before. I will repeat it again because it is some of the best pastoral advice that I can give to you as a congregation. I know that when the darkest, hardest things happen to us and I sit with you, If I can see in you some apprehension in the deepest, darkest place of where you are, the mercy of God, I know you'll be okay. Your soul will be fine. Your heart will be fine. But if I can't and it's not there, you won't be. You won't be. Because bitterness builds upon itself. In the last two weeks that my mom was alive, we were at the uh, Robin Johnson House, a hospice facility in Dallas, North Carolina. And it was a beautiful, beautiful place uh, out in the country, surrounded by fields. Uh, The people there cared for us. It it was terrific. It it was a gift of God to us. One day we were there. It's a few days before my mom died. And she, she motioned for me to come to the bed to talk to her. And I went over to her and she said, I need to ask you something. I'm like, okay. She said, what happened to your father and I such that we lost our house and we're living in this place now? She said, there's so much coming and going. This is like living in a commune. And I said, well, Mom, this, this, is, this is where God has us right now. This is how he's providing for us. And she's like, I want to go home. I want to go home. And that was her desire. She expressed that to us regularly. She wanted to go home. Wouldn't we all? My dad took her by the hand and said, listen, this is the way this is going to work. He said, you, if you get better, we'll go home. And if you don't, you'll go home. So as, as you look at that, as you see that in the midst of the, that sort of circumstance and that so, sort of difficulty, if you can see the mercy of God in the midst of that, 
than even, even in the darkest, deep, deepest place. And, and when I say if you can see the mercy of God, I'm not saying that you have a giddy happiness in, in the midst of this, but you, that you understand that there is a God. And though you may not understand his hard providence, the fact is there is a good God who loves you and is for you. Right? Next slide. But God is providing for Naomi. He is providing for her in Ruth's amazing, remarkable faithfulness. And what you have to see, well, we'll, we'll see. So this is, this is what Ruth says to Naomi. Do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if even death parts me from you. What a remarkable statement. What, what, a, what a profound statement. So the more we think about Ruth's words, the more amazing they become. Ruth's commitment to her destitute mother-in-law is simply astonishing. First, it means leaving her own family and land. So Ruth turns her back on Moab, turns her back on her family, turns her back on her culture, turns her back on her heritage to align herself now with this destitute woman. Secondly, it means, as far as she knows, a life of widowhood and childlessness because Naomi has no man to give. And if she married a non-relative of Naomi's, Her commitment to Naomi's family would be lost. So when she says she'll go with her, that her God will be her God, her people will be her people, she's not saying, I'm going to go to Bethlehem with you, and hopefully I'll find a man there. She's saying, I'll go to Bethlehem with you. Third, it means going to an unknown land with a new people and new customs and new language something that uh, many of us have experienced. Fourth, it was a commitment even more radical than marriage because she says, where you die, I will die and there be buried. In other words, she'll never return home, not even if Naomi dies. So what, what she's saying here is, you know, when we, when we say till death do us part, and then once death parts us, we're free to go and do whatever she wants. She's saying, no, where you go and where you die, I'll stay there and die. But the most amazing commitment of all is this. Your God will be my God. Naomi has just said in verse 13, the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. And Naomi's experience of God then is just bitterness, right? Listen, Naomi has, isn't out there saying to Ruth, you know, let me tell you about the God of Israel. He loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life, <laughs> right? That's, that's not what he's saying to her. He's, in fact, he's saying his hand has been heavy against me. But in spite of this, Ruth forsakes her religious heritage and makes the God of Israel her God. So we don't know exactly what the content of her faith is. We don't know how deep this runs, but this is what we know. Somehow or other, Ruth had come to trust in Naomi's God in spite of Naomi's bitter experiences. So Ruth stands alone. She possesses nothing. Uh, She makes a clean break with everything that she has known in her past except her mother-in-law. Now, what's profound to me about this is, is Naomi's response. 
Naomi can't see anything. And the reason why she can't see anything is because Ruth doesn't just say to her, no, I'll stay with you. No, I'll stay with you. She says, no, where you go, I'll go. Where you live, I'll live. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my my people. And where you die, I will die also. And let God do even worse to me if I don't do that. She makes a vow. And so once she's made that vow, if Naomi talks her out of that vow, Naomi's guilty. And so what's her response? Nothing. Can you imagine? Ruth says this to her, mentions this vow, and they walk on in silence towards a completely unknown future. Who's your family? Who loves you? See, one of the things that you should see about this is, is certainly that as, as, as profound as Ruth's commitment is to her mother-in-law, it pales in comparison to the commitment that Jesus makes to his bride. That he will go uh, live her life, die her death, rise again for her, go all the way through death, even to eternity, to be with her forever and ever and ever and ever. But right now, right today, who loves you? One day, a rich man came to Jesus and said, um, how can I inherit eternal life? And Jesus knew that he was rich and knew the state of his heart. And Jesus tells him, go and sell everything that you have. Give to the poor and come and follow me. And the man went away sad. Because he was rich. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it would be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the, the disciples are startled. It says the disciples were amazed at his words. And Jesus said to them, children, boys, boys, listen, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. Not just for rich people, but for anybody. We should always be stunned when, with, with the breadth and the depth of the gospel, that it can reach anyone and that, that only by the power of God are any of us in the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Because it seems like rich people ought to be saved because obviously God's provided for them. They're rich. Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Now, Peter has been sitting here listening to this. He is not tracking with the conversation because he got stuck at the beginning about the rich people. And he's thinking, wait, if rich people, if it's hard for rich people to make it, then I got it made because I've made myself poor for you, Jesus. So he says, Peter began to say to him, see, we've left everything and followed you. Welcome me into the kingdom, <laughs> right? Actually, Peter's saying almost exactly the same thing as the rich, rich man. He's basing his availability to Jesus and Jesus' availability to him on, on what he has done. We've left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father, or children, or lands, for my sake and for the gospel, who 
will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Bear with me now. This, this, is a, this picture that we get here of Ruth and Naomi is a picture of the kind of community that the Lord is building. And it's not what you think it is. You think, you look at community and what your desire for community is to have somebody whose kids are maybe at a similar stage of life or who works in the same industry or who has about the same experience that you do, who seems to be attractive, someone you're interested in that you'd like to go get a cup of coffee with, and you're just lonely and you'd like to have a friend. And I want to tell you, that's good. But that's not this. The kind of community that the Lord is building here is not that at all. The kind of community that the Lord is building is the kind of community that feels to us at first like a burden. Ruth's a burden. Naomi doesn't want anything to do with her. But not only that, the kind of community that the Lord is building requires the power of the Holy Spirit to overcome bitterness and barriers and brokenness so that there can be a community committed to one another in love. Rarely does this ever happen. Rarely. And it is interesting to me to note that in this book, it happens as a result of there being no one else. Ruth is all Naomi has. And Naomi is all that Ruth has. And yet in that is the rich, profound provision of God. Could it be that the Lord is providing for you with that person you don't want to be with, who is the very mercy of God to you, but because you and I think of community as something that's much more commercial, something much more transactional, this suddenly is something we've never thought about. When was the last time you were loved by someone and they ha- the only way they could love you was by the power of the Holy Spirit trusting Jesus? So we see here a picture of the Lord's goodness that he gives to those what they need even when they reject it and don't believe that they need it. And his love is so overpowering 
that it will not take no for an answer. The Lord is committed to what he loves, and he loves what he is committed to. So there's a rebuke here for us in our shallow understanding that community is commonality. Real Christian community, just like real Christian hospitality, happens between strangers and people with vast differences because God has put them together, because there is no one else, and because it is an illustration to us of the gospel that Jesus associates himself with and sacrifices himself for that which does not deserve it, certainly, but for that which is different from him. Who loves you? And who do you love? When was the last time it took the power of the Holy Spirit for you to love someone? Or are you like me, that I spend my time and energy loving those who are easier, more accessible to love. Perhaps, perhaps, one of the reasons why the gospel is just words on a page to us is because we don't often find ourselves in places of such pain that the only person the only way we can experience the mercy of God is through something we actually don't even want in the first place. When our first uh, son died, uh, it was a dark, dark time for us. Very dark. He died on a Friday, and we were sitting in our house on Sunday afternoon, and there was a knock on the door, and I went to the door, and there was an elderly, crusty old guy who was kind of a friend standing there with his wife with tears in his eyes and a giant box of barbecue. And he said, I know this can't make it better. But here, take this. Now, that's my love language, frankly. <laughs> Barbecue. You know, uh, the, the pig is my friend, right? Uh, I love pork. I could eat it every meal and it's various and sundry, tasty forms. But the fact that of that was, that was the provision of God to tell me in that moment that he would heal me that he would provide for me, and that he would care for me. And it came through the messenger of someone I, I didn't like. Let's pray. Lord, we uh, come to you today with uh, confessing uh, our inability to know and to understand sometimes what, what it is you're up to. Forgive us. And uh, I thank you today for uh, just this picture of your commitment to your people and how you provide. Lord, I, I pray uh, for myself and for my brothers and sisters here that uh, 
we would not be so embittered and so turned in on ourselves that we would reject the good mercy that you have for us. Even in those people that seem like burdens to us, would you do that work in us? Would you help us? Lord, I thank you so much for Naomi. I thank you for her bitterness. I thank you for her grief. And I thank you for the way that uh, you did not let her grief have the last word, but that you stepped into that and that you provided, even in a way she at first certainly rejected, but that's how you provided for her and ultimately for your people. So help us today, Lord. Help us to sort this out. Help us to, to be confused in a good way, to be challenged to be encouraged, because in the midst of all this, just as it was on that road to Bethlehem, you're there. You're at work, even in the darkness. So bless us with that today, we pray in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. As the guys... Uh,